Uh, why don't we uh, Why don't we start by praying? Pray that this uh, this whole section here gets filled in. Or some, you guys did like a, a wave or something. Something happened today. All right, let's pray, y'all. Father, um, Lord, it is such a glorious honor and privilege to be in your house today, to be in your church, and to be among your people. And Father, I'm just reminded of the fact that you you delight in using uh, weak and feeble and inadequate uh, vessels, uh, vessels of clay, uh, to fill us with your glory and with your power, Lord. We just confess, Lord, that we are inadequate for all the things that you call us to, Lord. We, Father, we often fail you, and our hearts are often faithless. But as Scripture tells us, Lord, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And Lord, we're just so grateful for that. Pray, pray that you would minister that to our heart. And Lord, I pray that you would instruct our mind now and grow us and deepen us according to the faith. Help us to understand, Lord, the nature of the atonement. And this is the very soul of the gospel right here, what we're talking about. I mean, this is the very heart and soul of the gospel message. Help us to understand it rightly, clear up any misconceptions in our minds, and help us to see uh, all of the glory that you've invested in the atoning work of your son, Jesus. Bless our time, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Uh, well, if you would, please turn with me to uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. <clears throat> so we're talking about uh, the atonement again, and uh, if you remember... If you remember from uh, previous weeks, uh, as we looked at the atonement, uh, we talked about all kinds of different things. We talked about the nature of the atonement. Uh, we talked about uh, what the atonement is. Uh, biblically, we defined it. We talked about the, uh, the blood and what it symbolizes. And we talked about the fact that the blood being shed in the Bible where there is shed blood, especially in the context of uh, atonement and the worship of Israel, that it was symbolic of the fact that a life had been ended, that a life had been given, that something lost its life. And so in Scripture, we read about the shed blood of Jesus, which is indicative of the fact that Jesus uh, gave his life, right? And that is what the blood of Christ being shed symbolizes. And with the shed blood, according to Leviticus 17.11, it says that the life of the body is in the blood. Okay, sorry to have to pull you in here today and start talking about blood and all this blood, shedding blood and all this. But it is through the shedding of blood, or rather it is in the blood that possesses the life of the person, the life of the being. And it's just remarkable so that by shedding his blood, Jesus is showing that he is shedding his life, that he is letting go of the life that he had here. And uh, we talked a little bit about the nature of the atonement as well uh, and what it symbolized and what it consisted of. And you remember that the atoning work of Christ and that the, um, the work that Christ did for us was part of his obedience to the Father. And we talked about two aspects of the obedience of Christ. You guys remember what that was? Number one is active 
obedience, right? Active, which means these are the things that he did positively in our place. He lived a perfect life, right? Jesus obeyed the law of God. He fulfilled the law. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And then not only his active obedience, but what is also known as his passive obedience, which his passive obedience suggests the things not that he did, but what was done to him. So the passive obedience has to do with the things that Jesus suffered in his life and especially in his death. And uh, this sort of makes up uh, the work of Christ while he was on earth. And we talked about the need for Jesus to live a perfect life. The fact that when Jesus came, he wasn't just born a baby and then killed instantly, right? Uh, so if he wasn't killed immediately upon birth, that must mean that Jesus needed to live. And then we have to ask the question, well, why did Jesus need to live? Well, he needed to live in our place to fulfill all righteousness, as he told John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus, looking back at all of the righteous demands of the law, all the way back in the Old Testament, all the laws that stipulated what are the things that man must do in order to be righteous before God, Jesus did all of those things. And we also talked about his, uh, we also talked about his penal representation. The fact that uh, the death of Christ, the atoning work of Christ was also, right, penal in nature. And by penal, what theologians mean is that there had to be a penalty that was paid. Right? So Jesus paid the penalty for, uh, for the violation of God's law and fulfilled God's moral requirements, his justice, right? his justice. Um, when he did all of these things and representing us, living a perfect life for us and all of that, remember we said that was a different term and that means that there was a federal, a federal, representation in the atonement. What does federal re refer to? The fact that Jesus represents us legally before God. So there's a legal representation, and then there's a legal penalty that has to be paid. And this is all what Jesus did in the atonement. Dying on the cross, shedding his blood, <coughs> being our sacrifice. Yes, sir? Just a quick question. The top two, active and passive, are we not as like little Christ, in Christ, to also exercise those things like Jesus did in active and passive in our walk? <clears throat> well, we have to focus on, when, when we're talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ, what we understand about that is that the life of Jesus and the atoning work of Jesus, right, was for redemption. So you live, a, you live a good life, right? You live in obedience to God's law. You try to walk obediently before the Lord, but your obedience does not result in redemption. And so Christ's obedience, obedience is redemptive in nature, okay? So yes, we are to emulate Christ, imitate him. We are to be like him and, and try to follow in his footsteps in terms of the example that he left us he himself says that, right? And what is it, John 13? He says, I left you an example that you should follow, right? So in all of our life, we should seek to emulate Christ. However, in his atonement, we cannot emulate Christ. 
We can shed your blood, Mike, but your blood's not going to redeem anybody. <laughs> and neither is mine. We need a redeemer. So, all of this, okay, all of this now, uh, all of these categories, okay, and we come to a very controversial point of theology, as you know. Uh, the question now comes, having looked at the nature of the atonement, now we speak about the extent of the atonement. And so what we're asking is, right, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? There's only two possibilities here, okay? There is one possibility known as, thanks for the uh, background music, uh, there's universalism, and then there is, hope you can read that, my wife's always telling me to slow down, there is universalism, and then there is particularism, I guess we could say, right? Universalism is the idea and there are different modifications of each of these views. But universalism basically means that he did what he did on the cross through his atonement for all, for all people. Um, I hope I spelled that right. This is a big word. I have to write it out. For all people, no exceptions. No exceptions, folks. No exceptions. Now, fathom the exhaustiveness of that, what we're saying, is that the atoning work of Christ is applied to all people or was for and on the behalf of all people, no exceptions whatsoever. So we're talking about every man, woman, and child that has ever been, that, will, that is right now, and that will ever be, has the atoning work of Christ applied to them, or it was for them. Um, the reason I use the word universalism is because if this were true, then what this would result in is in an inescapable universalism. The, 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 the doctrine of universalism teaches what? Everybody will be saved. Everybody will be saved, right? There are many heretics throughout the history of the Christian church who have taught this sort of thing. Um, and, and even today, there are many people who teach this sort of thing. Just interacting with the atonement uh, this week, I was reading all sorts of, of, of uh, heretics, and, and uh, a lot of them out of Germany, you know, these old German higher critics. Higher critics were those that sort of had a, a pessimistic view of Scripture. They, they saw Scripture more as a human document rather than a divine document. So they sort of denied the divine origin of Scripture and tried to account for everything about Scripture along a humanistic line. And that led to liberalism in the 18th century in Germany, and uh, that actually gives birth to much of the liberalism today. Anyway, sorry for the little side history there, but I uh, thought it was important to point that out. But many of them were universalists. They believe that, as one, uh, I think it was Kaseman, who said that the atonement is worthless unless it, is, unless it results in universalism. And these are the type of conclusions they came to. Um, however, particularism also has a universal element in it. Please follow along now. That what, what we're saying, that the atonement has a particular design instead of a universal design, um, is that the atonement is for all, but it's not 
all, no exceptions whatsoever. But all, you guys have heard me say this before, right? No, no distinction. distinction, right? No distinction. And Robert, what do we mean by no distinction? That uh, it is available to all people, groups, places. Uh, places. Well, well, in terms of global <laughs> countries. Extent, okay. Global extent. I can go with uh, that. Tribe, tongue, and nations. All you know, tribes, tongues, and nations will have the ability to re receive and hear the gospel, but not every single human being there ever existed will will be able to receive the benefits of the gospel. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, this divide right here is just trying to make sense out of what Scripture teaches, right? Um, there are places in the Bible that use even the word all, all, uh, when talking about the atonement. Um, but uh, does that mean all in a universal sense? Um, right? He died for all, right? The obedience of, uh, the one act of obedience resulted in justification for all. Right, so what what does that refer to? And so there's this ongoing battle between universalism and particularism. Who makes better sense of all of the data in Scripture? And so what I would say is that this definitely makes more sense, and this what has historically been called the position. You've heard it, right? Limited atonement. I'll just abbreviate. Limited, I forgot one eye, limited atonement. Now, throughout the history of the church, um, this view began, you know, uh, it was really sort of fleshed out and crystallized during the Reformation period. Uh, shortly after the Reformation period, you're talking about, uh, you're talking especially late 16th century and 17th century. So you're talking about late 1500s, and definitely in the 1600s. Because it was in the 1600s particularly, the 17th century, that after the Reformation period, much of the Reformation theology began to take shape. It began to crystallize, and it ultimately uh, culminated or climaxed in what was called the Synod of Dort. And the synod, uh, what's a synod? A synod. What's a synod? A meeting or a ruling? That's right. A synod is a meeting. It's just a gathering, a council of people coming together, right? And Dort was, Dort is a place in England, right? In, 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 the, in, in, in Europe that they met at in the Synod of Dort. And all these scholars came together and they convened to talk about the theology that had emerged from Calvin and Luther. And at the Synod of Dort, they began to crystallize the th things like the atonement, salvation, soteriology, um, how do we understand the, the, the atonement of Christ, the extent of the atonement, all of those things, okay? So this is, this is where limited atonement came from. And actually, actually, um, when this took place after the Reformation, what the Reformers were doing is they were not sitting in a room thinking, you know what, let's, um, you know, let's, 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 let's think of a, of a system of doctrine that we can, you know, sort of create Right, to disagree right, with the Catholics. But it was actually done because the Catholics had posited, uh, they had posited a group of doctrines that say, look at you reformers, Calvin, Luther, all you guys, you've, you've broken away from the Catholic Church, and this is what we disagree with you about. And one of those disagreements was the nature of the atonement. 
And so the Reformed community, the Protestant community, responded and said, no, you're wrong. It is not universal atonement. It is particular atonement. It is limited atonement. Now, some people don't like the word limited because it makes it sound like, so Christ is limited? Like, he couldn't do better than what he did, right? John chapter 10. Because... In John chapter 10, you have a theology that a lot of people don't even... Just tell me if I'm erasing anything that you want to be left up there. Too late. I was going to say, what good would that do? <laughs> <laughs> you need a bigger board. Yeah. Um, you need to do like, uh, like Piper does with the little video thing. Stop. Get <laughs> <laughs> you know, up your game. <laughs> I've coveted that thing, trust me. Circling the verses and stuff. Let's see here, let me get rid of this. Um, you know, the concept of Jesus as a shepherd, the disciples as his sheep, right? Where does that come from? I mean, it has a context, it has a background, right? It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from somewhere. Where does it come from? It comes from the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament? David. David. Okay, the imagery. That's very good. David was a shepherd, right? He was a shepherd, shepherd boy. I wonder if, I wonder if Nathan, if he understood, or Samuel, who was it that went and got him? I wonder if they, when they saw him coming down out of the fields as a shepherd boy with a sheep, I wonder if they realized what they were looking at. You know, a picture of Jesus, the shepherd, you know. Um, yeah, that's right. So, but uh, <clears throat> particularly if you go to the Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. shepherd. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. <laughs> okay, as a Jew, you automatically understand, wait a minute, Yahweh is the shepherd. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking upon himself titles of Yahweh, shepherd being one of the one of the premier titles, and um, all throughout the Old Testament, you especially see this throughout um, throughout the um, throughout the prophets. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Jeremiah. God promising to shepherd His people. <laughs> so I am contending that by the time you get to John chapter ten. And all of this shepherd language, what Jesus is doing is he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That he is the realization of how God shepherds his flock. Right? Let's start in verse 11. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Excuse me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for whom? For the sheep. For the sheep. And so the question is, okay, we know who the shepherd is, but who is the sheep? Uh, Let's let's just think about this even historically. When God identified in the Old Testament his sheep, okay, um, let's see here. For example, in, let's see here. I think in Isaiah 40, verse 11, somebody look that up. 
Isaiah 40, verse 11. Um, somebody read that if you, if you go there, okay? But these types of texts, who are the sheep in those, te- in those, in those types of texts? Isaiah 40? Yeah, verse 11, I believe it is. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs. The lambs. Carry them in his bosom. He will greatly lead the nursing ewes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, that reminds me of what Jesus told Peter, right, after his resurrection. He told Peter, Peter, if you love me, uh, tend my flock, right? If you love me, what do you say? Feed my lambs, you know, all of those feed my sheep, you know, all that, all of that imagery. So the sheep in the Old Testament refers to the, refers to the Philistines, right? <laughs> okay. Who does it refer to then? The Amalekites? Israel, right? So even in the Old Testament, what God does for his sheep is particular because the sheep are none other than Israel. And who is Israel? Israel is his covenant people, right? Israel is the people of God with whom God is in covenant with. That is who his people are. That's his flock. That's his sheep. Those are his lambs. And that's who he shepherds. Okay? Now, now, now recall now, Jesus is saying that he doesn't just shepherd the sheep. What does he do for the sheep? He lays down his life for the sheep. Right? So that is a reference to the atonement. Right? He is laying down his life for the sheep. Sheep, And that's why consistently throughout this whole thing, you have an interaction between the, the shepherd and the sheep. No one can snatch his sheep out of his hands. Nobody can snatch the sheep out of his father's hands. Right? He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, verse 15. Um, Even as the father knows me, I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Watch this. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold... Right, And I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So who are the two flocks, or the two folds? Jew and Gentile. That's right. It is Jew and Gentile. And here, but but, but what does he do with Jew and Gentile? (laughs) He makes them one flock. Right? One. One. Right? Covenant people of God. One. Right? Not two people. Right? It's not like Israel is over here and the church is over here. The church is kind of like plan B. The church is kind of like what God had to do because his, his real people just, you know, deserted him. So he had to go and get different people. Right? Now he has two people. You know, no. We just believe there is one flock, one shepherd, one people, one church, one faith. You know, um, one baptism. What, what does it go on to say? Ephesians 4. Um, okay. Um, so, on top of that, you have all of these texts. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. Just to give you several texts, okay? Several, several texts. Matthew, from the very outset of Jesus' ministry, this is exactly what he set out to do. This is exactly what he set out to do. Okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Verse 21. 
right? She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you, you shall call his name Jesus, which means what? What does the word Jesus mean? Yeshua. Yeshua. No, that's Christ. Yeshua means Savior, right? So, for he, for he will save his people from their sins. You see that? So, two particular points there. He will save his people from their sins. Okay, this is a problem for universalists, okay? Um, is that there is no question um, that Scripture... Well, turn to John chapter 1. There's no question that Scripture makes universalistic statements, if you would. Okay? Um, there's no question the Bible, John chapter 1, verse 29, there's no question that the Bible makes statements that sound universalistic or that are general, but this is the problem for universalists. What do you do with the particularism? <laughs> right? Okay, we understand that God is able to talk about who he saves as a whole in general, but what do you do when the Bible gets specific about who he atones for, right? And defines the general by the particular. Okay, that's very, because you can't go from the particular to the general, because then it makes no sense. His people, well, what, what sense does it make to identify someone as his people if everyone is his people? Right? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Be careful because even Calvinists cannot quote this verse correctly. Most people say he takes away the sins, plural, of the world. Uh, you say, well, you're making a whole lot out of nothing there. I mean, okay, sins, sin, but isn't the real issue the world? Right? I would say no. I would say that the reason why he uses the singular word here, hamartia, sin, right, is because he's looking at the world as a, in, in a representative fashion. He's looking at the world and generalizing the sin. He's not trying to particularize every sin in the entire world. And so he generalizes. And so there's nothing wrong with Scripture generalizing in this way so long as we understand that the particular verses define the general verses. Okay, let's go to 1 John. 1 John, okay, because this is another place. And actually, when I was working through this theology, it was the letter of 1 John and this exact passage that I'm going to take you to. It was this exact verse that gave me the biggest trouble in terms of, wait a minute, here I am, Okay, being told by some people, those mean Calvinists, you know, that the atonement is limited to only God's people, God's elect. We'll get to that. Um, but this verse, I mean, seems to fly completely in the face of that. Look at this, verse 2, right? Well, let's read verse 1 because it is so magnificent. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 2, 1. 1 John 2, 1. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is, uh, favorite pastor uh, word to teach his people, the propitiation right, of our sins. 
and not of ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And I thought, here it is right there. And I mean, what is Calvinist talking about? I mean, it's right there, the whole world. How much more clear can he make it? Well, the problem with this is twofold. Number one, we know from Scripture, nobody denies this. The most, you know, belligerent Arminian person does not deny that the Bible teaches that not everyone is going to be saved. Has anybody heard of hell? (laughs) So there are people in hell, and there are people that will go to hell. Jesus said, difficult and hard is the way that leads to eternal life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many people go that way. Difficult and hard is the road that leads to eternal life, and few will be there that find it. So according to Jesus, from that scripture, bare minimum, not everyone is going to be saved, right? We could even go as far as to say less people will be saved that will not be saved from that scripture. And so then the question becomes, wait a minute. So if the propitiation that is made here is for the whole world, meaning, where did my stuff go? No exception whatsoever. Then then why are there people going to hell? Right? Because here's the problem, and I talked to a good friend of mine not too long ago. Now he's a missionary in Ireland, and he was at seminary at the time, finished up his seminary, and now he's in Ireland as a missionary pastoring a church out there. We, I've been trying to convert him to Calvinism for the longest time, just being honest, just being honest. And, uh, you know, we debate, very friendly, back and forth, you know what I mean? And he took me to this verse, and I said, you know, bro, you know the Greek as well as I do. Um, I asked him, now, explain to me the grammar of verse 2. He is the propitiation of our sins. Now, is that saying that he is potentially the propitiation? Let's, let's define, what does propitiation mean? The payment, well, wrath appeasing, and what does to appease, I mean, what does that mean? To satisfy the wrath of God. Is there a simpler way to define that? Propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God, and therefore, what does he do with the wrath? Where's the wrath? He turns it away. There is no more wrath, right? Guys, I have news for you. The wrath of God, if you're in Christ today, the anger of God has been moved away from you. Isn't that incredible? You do not, you are not awaiting a certain fear and expectation of judgment and fury and indignation. You are not waiting for that. That is not coming your way if you're in Christ. Because the wrath of God has been removed. It has been appeased. The justice of God satisfied. But here's the grammar of this verse, you guys. Is that this is not talking about what might be, what could be, what the potential is there for there to be. This verse is talking about what actually exists in reality. This is truth. This has actually happened. So Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. He does it. The wrath of God at the cross was satisfied. That means guilty sinners who trust in Christ, that wrath has been removed from you so that it's no longer impending judgment, right? The problem with that is that there, if, if, if that work of propitiation was done for the whole world, no exceptions, 
then that means what in the world are we warning people about? If this verse is universal, then we should be going around telling people, hey, don't worry about it. The whole world, no exceptions, that means you included, has no more wrath to look forward to. Now, is that what the scriptures are teaching? Of course not. And so we have to redefine, or at least we have to educate ourselves that when John speaks of the world, what is he talking about? Mankind? Types of people. Types of people? How about just in this verse? What do you think? Because there's two people identified here. But he says, not for ours only. Who is that? Okay. But also for those of the whole world. I think I would lean towards your position, uh, Chris. I think that John is thinking Jew-Gentile. He's foretelling, too, of leaving not just... Well, not just staying in the Asia Minor area, but, I mean, this is prophetic, and it's going to go across the ocean someday. That's right. And literally the whole world. That's right. That's right. It's a very missionary-esque statement. Right. So, yes, sir. I got here um, Genesis 12. God speaking to Abraham. Yes, please read that, because that was in my mind. Um, 12, 13, uh, 12, 3. 1 through 3. Read 1 through 3. Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I show to you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great as... You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we don't even need to question what that's talking about, right? Why? Because Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 3. He, he doesn't leave it to us to try to figure out, okay, what was that all about? He tells us exactly what that was all about. He tells us that this, that this promise was made not so much to Abraham as much as who Abraham represented, i.e. Christ, and that that promise is fulfilled in Christ, right? He says, uh, Galatians 3.14, for example, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And um, verse 8 speaks well of it as well. That's right. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that is what Carlos read, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Think about that. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. According to this book, according to this passage of Paul here, was preaching the gospel. So here's a question that we have to answer when we read the Old Testament. The next time you go back around and read it, you have to ask yourself the question, was Genesis written originally with this intention in mind? Or are the authors of the New Testament coming to conclusions because of what happened and going, 
we need to we need to reread the Old Testament in a different way. Which one is it? Are the apostles inspired to reinterpret the Old Testament in a certain fashion? Nope. Or was the Old Testament intrinsically written that way? Purposely. You can kind of see where I'm leaning, right? Yeah. Yes. They're acknowledging what was what already is. That's right. Yeah, because then then that, what that results in is almost like changing or discarding the original meaning of the text, right? It's saying, uh, we know it wasn't written you know, originally for this, but we're going to reinterpret it like this. No, no. The, the apostles in the early church are discovering for themselves for the first time the, the Christology in the text, right? That God put there from the very beginning. I mean, folks, it's, the hermeneutics of that is so easy. It's as simple as this. God is omniscient. <laughs> he, he knows exactly how he's going to fulfill Genesis chapter 12. And he knows exactly how he's going to fulfill Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and every other prophecy that he put in the Old Testament about Christ. He already knew how he's going to do it all. It's amazing, amazing. Um, I got a little bit caught up, so I kind of lost my place. But um, uh, can anybody else think of any important... Um, important uh, texts on the atonement that you want to talk about. I didn't prepare any notes, so I just thought, you know, whatever. I had another thing that came to mind, but I, I couldn't find it, it uh, where you, you were talking about universalism. Christ himself was speaking of people that were unrighteous, that would die with the tower or something like that. Luke 13. Mm-hmm. And, and so what? he's distinguishing that salvation is not for everybody. Okay. You know, there were, there's even some that I don't know how universalism people can just hang on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what, 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 what that side, to be fair to that side, what they're saying is that the atonement is for everyone. And that's the way it was designed. Now, in order for that atonement to be effective for you, you have to activate it through faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. The problem with that is that that is not what the scripture says. You know, the scripture is very specific that the atoning work of Christ actually, um, I'm going to use the word, it procures what it what is designed to do. The word procure means to obtain, right? Uh, Jesus said, um, he said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, right? But the unrighteous and to give my life as a ransom, Right? And so when Jesus gave his life as a ransom, so we're, we're understanding something different about the atonement now. That the atonement was a ransom. What is a ransom? A payment. Okay? Now this is the theology of the Old Testament. That when you ransom something, or when you redeem something, or when you pay for something, you get what you paid for. Right? Um, it's not like layaway, you know? You put something on layaway and then, you know, some irresponsible delinquent just leaves his stuff there. Right? That's not how it is. It is in the Old Testament, when you purchased a slave, you got the slave. When you purchased a plot of land, you obtained. It's called redeeming. You redeemed it. Have you ever heard of that? Redeem this coupon at Walmart. Right? It means go get what it pays for. And that's exactly what the atonement is des- described as. I think a beautiful picture of that in the Old Testament would be Ruth. Ruth. Boaz, Boaz and the kin- and playing the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. He, he purchased that 
land he purchased Ruth as a wife in that sense. Yeah. Bought her back. That's right. Amen. Uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 20, please, because this is a very um, powerful text here. Acts chapter 20. Okay. Um, this, is, this, this kind of accomplishes two things here, right? Acts 20, beginning in verse 28. Um, this verse accomplishes two things. <clears throat> Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian elders to be careful uh, and to take their, their, their oversight serious, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased it. It's a perfect symmetry there. What he purchased, he obtained. It's his church that belongs to him now. He, he purchased it. He bought it. He obtained it, right? And he did it with his blood. Right? But it's particular because he's saying he purchased who? The church. The church. He purchased the church with his own blood. Now, when did the concept of the church come into God's mind? When did he think that he would have a church? Is it just an accident? Well, you know, Christ died on the cross, and some people believed in him. Hey, man, let's, uh, let's get together and, you know, create this thing called the church. What's that? Right? Before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth. Now, what would, be, what would be a passage that speaks of the church in that way? Ephesians. Ephesians? Okay, turn to Ephesians, because that's not the verse I'm thinking about. So I knew you Calvinists would think of that verse. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, uh, the verse that Carlos is referring to is verse 4. I'm thinking of a different verse. But that is a good verse, and that is talking about the church. Uh, who's there? Robert, you there? No. I was, no? I was in the old You checked out? Chris, are you there? Yeah. Okay, you want to read it? I'm looking for something else. Ephesians 1.4? Yeah, I had to give you a hard time. Sorry. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Mm -hmm. You just want to keep reading, huh? Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> he is <indeed. laughs> Well, Chris, why don't you jump over to chapter 3? Because that's, um, that's the verse that I was thinking about when I was thinking about the church and when the concept originated and, um, and all of that. Ephesians chapter 3, begin, let's just say begin in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8 and go all the way to verse 12. It says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is, this is critical here, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, let's stop right there. So <clears throat> you can see that it's almost like you're getting to verse 10 and says, he made this known through the church. And you say, well, yeah, but that's, again, that's after the fact. And then he backs us up, right? Verse 11, this was according to his eternal purpose. The eternal purpose of God was to manifest 
his redemption through the church, right? By redeeming them in Christ. This was his eternal purpose all along. This is the great mystery. I got news for you guys. This local body, this little church here, this little local expression of the universal church all worldwide, we are the declaration, um, not just to the rulers of this world, but what this is talking about to the demonic realm. (laughs) Fathom that, to the angelic and the demonic realm, the fact that we exist as a church is the demonstration to all the world, to all creation, of what God had hidden in his heart for all time. And then he reveals it through Jesus Christ. He reveals it through Jesus Christ and through what he does through the church. And we are like, we're like, you know, exhibit A, right? We, we're the first, we're one of the lines of evidence. Look at this. You know, look at the church. You look at the church and you see, wow, this is what God intended from all eternity to create a people in Christ. You're the proof. The proof's in the pudding, baby. Right? Jesus rose from the dead, and then there's a New Testament church on earth. Boom! And then we're called to go worldwide, global, all the nations, all the peoples. Right? And uh, according to this passage, and according to Acts chapter 20, this is who he bought. This is who he purchased with his blood. Right? And... um, Okay, just a few more minutes. One last passage. You know I like this passage. Revelation chapter 5, please. And we'll end here. Revelation chapter 5, I think that I think this is this to me is one of the greatest you know, one of the greatest you know, passages on limited atonement, on particular redemption. Revelation chapter 5 because and the reason why is because um, it is so explicit. Uh, it's telling us how the world is going to end. It is telling us this is what happens at the end of time. This is what's going to happen. It says, and this is a picture of the glorified saints singing a song. And it says, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, talking about Jesus, you were slain, think about that, guys, in heaven, singing about the fact that Jesus was slaughtered like a lamb. That's what we're going to be singing about. You were slain, and you purchased, there's the language of redemption. You purchased for God with your blood, there's the atonement, men, or literally just from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Isn't that remarkable? And so he doesn't say you redeemed every tribe. To-. No, no, no. That's not what it says. Very careful. It has a little preposition. I pointed this out before. But the little Greek preposition is this. Ek. Right? Ek. Says, Greek looks a little bit like English at times. So he's saying that this preposition means from, can even mean out. We could say out of. So you, re- you purchased people out of every tribe, 
How's it go? I can never get it right. Tribe, tongue, people, nation. And what are we seeing now? Right? How many, how many tongues, tribe, tribes, people, nations do we have in here? Right? We have different nationalities in here, different races. And you look at what God is doing globally, and he's redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's just remarkable testimony of what God has done. Um, this is just talking about the, the missionary enterprise of the church. What is going on? What God is doing through the gospel? I mean, you realize right now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, when you think of Christianity, what do you think about? Do you think about an American religion? Because it is not anymore. A Christianity, according to David Wells and others, they have uh, conceded that now, right now on planet Earth, Christianity is predominantly an Asian and African religion. There are more Christians in Asia right now than there is in America. Can you even fathom that? An estimated 300 million confessing believers in Asia. In underground, many of them in underground churches and situations. I know there's cults in there. I, I got it. But there's a lot of genuine believers in the midst of that as well. Also, Africa. It's just remarkable what God is doing. You know, God doesn't need America. You know, we get this concept of like we're it, right? It's like, oh, God will finish the Great Commission and He will walk right over us if we do not obey. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm totally out of time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are um, fulfilling all of your purposes in Christ Jesus. And on top of that, Lord, that we would be considered in that number. Father, I pray for anybody here today and those that would come to our church that, um, that they would never leave this place without knowing that they are indeed in that number. Uh, Jesus said, come, in, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. And as the great um, theologian Augustine said, our souls are restless until we find our rest in Thee. Mm -hmm. And God, I pray that um, our church would be used uh, for ushering in salvation for people, God. I pray that we use our church, Lord, to save the lost. We, 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 we really want no other purpose, Lord. We, we, we really just we want to be here as a beacon of hope for people, that they can hear the gospel and they can be saved. People's lights can be turned on. You give life to the dead, Lord. Please use us, Father. Thank you for your word today in Jesus' name. Bless our worship. Amen. Amen.